All right, y'all, it's spring, and you know what that means. It's time to start planning our summer festival traveling. Yep, it's time to get into my Airbnb bag cross-country, a.k.a. uh, time to visit my homes all across the country. And you know what I never think about? Why not list my own spot on Airbnb and host some folks at my house? I mean, my house is cute. Yes, let's make money while we're spending money. Just trying to help you out, man, because your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Questlove Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. This classic episode was produced by the team at Pandora. What's up, everybody? This is Umpay Bill. This week's QLS Classic is with bassist Christian McBride. He recalls attending the same high school as Amir, playing on some incredible jazz records and a Miles Davis story you do not want to miss. Here it is, episode 68 from January 24th, 2018. Peace. Suprema, su, su, Suprema Roll Call. 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 Yeah. 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 Fonte, yeah. Y'all know I'm feeling it. Yeah. Here with two thirds. Yeah. The Philadelphia experiment. Roll call. Suprema. Suprema roll call. Suprema. Suprema roll call. We're Team Suprema. Yeah. We set the pace. Yeah. We got them drums. Yeah. We got them bass. Roll call. Suprema. Suprema roll call. Suprema, it's Suprema, Suprema, Suprema Roll Call. Neck bones and candy yams. Yeah. Turnips, smothered steak. Yeah. Grits and gravy. I do yeah. it. Cracking bread. Suprema, Roll Call. It's La E.M. Yeah. No question, that's right. Yeah. Philly in the house. Yeah. Yep, Christian McBride. This is McBride. You serious? You got me? I'm freestyling. Yeah. 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 That was the greatest improvisational musician of our generation. Suprema. Suprema roll call. Suprema. Suprema. Suprema roll call.
Wait, the biggest surprise of that all was Laia not making our guest her third line. Yeah, yeah. Is that what I usually do? Yeah, you know. Oh, really? Because Chris Brown is here. Right. Yeah, that's no, that's <laughs> that's the the, the standard Laia. I should have brought my bass. Oh. <laughs> that, that, you know, now you know next time. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of, mm, I'm about to say, the Christian McBride Diaries. Uh, <laughs> this is Questlove Supreme uh, with Team Suprema. Uh, say hello, guys. How you doing? Gucci gang, Gucci gang, Gucci gang, Gucci gang. With us today, um, you know, I'll, I'll say that we've had many a uh, hip-hop debate on the show. But I will still maintain that jazz is probably the most argued and the most debated uh, genre of music. Uh, its its fans are very passionate, and it's you know all opinions are subjective. But I will jazz arguments are my favorite. Yes, it, indeed. To watch. Oh, to watch, not yes. to be in. Yes. yes. Yeah, because you you, you got to have your data. But I I will I will say that. In my opinion, I believe that our guest today is is without a doubt uh probably the greatest living musician of his generation. And prop you know, of of currently in jazz right now. I mean I I feel as though he is the 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 spiritual epicenter, one foot rooted in in the tradition, the other foot rooted in experimenting and going outside of uh, out of the rim um that's all i can say about one of my favorite people ever christian lee mcbride welcome to quest love supreme what an honor homie yeah that's sweet of you I'm ne i never knew you felt that way come on bro i'm i'm I, I study you, bro. Hey, vice versa. I know who I'm messing with. So, are y'all the same <laughs> age? Are y'all the same generation? Like, this, this is what I'm saying. This is what I'm saying. Even at the age of 15, uh. Christian sounded like a 35 year old. Like <laughs> See, the way. This is why I'm excited because I want to hear all these stories about y'all being in, young and being the in way, high school together. Like the that. way that he talks right now, like I. I thought maybe he was a teacher's assistant. <laughs> like in school, he wore like. Like right now, he's wearing sneakers. I don't think I've maybe a few times I've seen you wear sneakers. Like he always wore suits. Oh wow! And he was clean. You know what I mean? So I my first day of performing arts school where we went. All right, the history of us is that uh, Christian and I went to uh, Creative and Performing Arts High School in Philadelphia um, at the same time that uh, Boys to Men went there. Uh, Amel Larue. Group theory. Y'all same class or yep. same class? Yes. Same class. Oh wow. He, okay. he and I are class of. Uh, <laughs> I'm proud of my age. 89. So. 89, baby. That's right. Oh, you look good. Yeah, Thank you. Yeah. I'm pretty. I, I know it was. I, I was looking at Christian, but. <laughs> 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 yeah, but I'll I'll say that for me, um, there's a point where, I guess in your teens, you got to get serious about about your craft. And, you know, I mean, pretty much people know the backstory. Like, I've been playing with my parents and all that stuff since I was like three, four, five years old, you know. And then my dad was like, well, you know, there's there's going to be a time where it's going to stop being cute. Like, you know, you're five, six, seven years old behind the drum set playing like a dog. Oh, that's cute. He's so cute. But there's a point where you're actually going to have to be good. Yeah. And I will say that 
my first day of school at Creative and Performing Arts was probably the biggest wake-up call of my life, which has me here today. Like, I, I consider that first day the day where I was like, oh, shit. I didn't know that there are other kids that play way better than I do. And, you know, because I didn't know... That, I didn't know any kids and, you know, people my age, like, playing. Like, I played with a bunch of oldies cats that were, like, 15 and 60. So, meeting Chris. I mean, on the first day of school, didn't Miles, didn't you guys do something with Miles Davis on the one? That, that was the, I think that was the following year. Y'all um, did something with Miles Davis yeah, on, on they, one of them they, local Channel 3 yeah, shows. Yeah, uh, Bill Boggs used to have a talk show on uh, daytime television in Philly. Uh, they had Miles Davis as a guest. And uh, they had this overly, this this naive romantic notion that they would have Miles Davis give a uh, a live um, workshop like a master class, mm. and they would invite not even have it because he's mad standoffish, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. Got to teach these niggas nothing. Well, I don't I don't know if he was standoffish, but he he's he was brutally honest. You know, he's a man that had. No filter, not even for a child. Because <laughs> oh, so you, you had an Ellis Marcellus moment? Well, I think Miles Davis is thinking, well, like, if you're bold enough to put me on television with a nine-year-old kid, you're going to have to hear the truth, mm-hmm. you know? So they had, um, they had the house band, which was myself, Joey DeFrancesco on, uh, on keyboard, and uh, Stacy Dozier on drums, yeah. our, our, our old buddy, yeah. and uh, they they invited four trumpet players from the Philly school system to come and play, and get Miles to critique them. Oh no! On live television, and uh, uh, not a good idea. Please, more. I need quotes. Like, what do what do he say about you? Uh, well, he didn't. We weren't featured. We were Dude, just. They were the master. Like that's what I'm saying, Chris. Oh. Chris was already at master level. Now, I don't know about that, but see, we weren't playing. We were just there to back up the, the trumpet players. Okay. They, they, did, they didn't, we weren't that on critique. display. Exactly. Who were some of the cast that, that were? Uh, Fred Goodson was one of the trumpet Fred? players. John Swanner was one of the trumpet players. Uh, Daoud was one of the trumpet players. Jaf- How was Daoud back then? And Jafar Barron. How old was Jafar? Like 11, 12? Uh, no, he was, let's see, I would have been 16, so Jafar might have been 15. And I remember Miles punched him in the chest. Oh, damn. <laughs> wow. Miles. <laughs> wow. Fuck Miles. your fort, little nigga. That's right. <laughs> Miles gave him a straight left right, right in the solar plexus, man. I couldn't believe it. Damn. <laughs> Wait a minute. I've known Jafar all these years. I've never heard that He never story. told you Miles punched him in the chest? But why did he punch him in the chest? Because he- after it was over. You know, we all went up to Miles to, you know, say hello. And then Miles, you know, kind of cased everyone up, you know, and he went, he, he saw Jafar. He went, boom. Oh, you better practice, boy. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. So, what year was this? How old was Miles around that time? That would have been 88. So, um, Tutu was yeah, like was two years old. Yeah, around that time. Yeah, right. Yeah, Miles was 64, maybe. 62, 62. But that was on the second day of of 11th grade, right? Something like, was it that early? I don't know if it was that early in the year, but it was sometime early in the year. I I had missed, because my parents were on the road, I had missed technically, I think, the first two days of school. So I came in on day three. Yeah. And I had already gotten word of, oh my God, Bill found it already. 
Oh, <laughs> yeah, the, the, uh, the YouTube the clip. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. I wish I could see what I just saw. Um, yeah, but it was mad. Like, for me, the whole experience is mad intimidating because every every high schooler has this what 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 set you claim in moment mm-hmm. i mean be it an actual what set you claim in moment or you got to choose a click you got to choose yeah and you because you're at performing arts high school i mean there's different uh, you know there's theater dance uh music creative writing the right. whole thing so then once you choose what you got to do but even inside those clicks there are other clicks sub clicks yeah and the thing was on on the right side of things was Christian McBride and Joey DeFrancesco, whom I already knew of, like seeing clips on the news, local news, and you know, jazz prodigies, Christian McBride and Joey, like 13, 14, like playing like, and I don't mean like, oh, they're cute for 13 year olds. No, like, they playing like playing, men. Like yes. <laughs> but then on the left side of it, Kurt Rosenwinkel, Kurt Rosenwinkel, who worked on Q Tips. Uh, he was on the second abstract. Album. Oh, yeah, come on, abstract there. record. Yeah. So Kurt Rosenwinkel uh, is a year older than us, and so he has a whole nother click. So basically, I'm trying to choose which fork in the road am I going to go, because these guys are talking traditional, straight ahead jazz, but then Rosenwinkel's trying to unteach me everything that they're teaching me by like <laughs> hit me to Frank Zappa, Malvisu Orchestra, like John McLaughlin, and all that stuff. And then on top of that, you know, I got to survive up in the lunchroom and Tariq's with the cool kids, <laughs> you know, so it's just an Dennis op- Boys to Men over there on the side. Well, what were we, they even? We, Next I generation? Think we hung with them. Well, no, we I didn't. don't remember saying. They had their own, they, they strictly hung with the, with the vocal cats. Yeah, when no, Amir tells a story, you always say he, they were already like together and passing. No, they were together. Out. They were singing, trying to get girls yeah. and all that stuff. But I mean, just as far as what set you claiming. Um, I definitely, you know, Rosenwinkel was, t- again, the jazz argument of do we file tradition in the 40s or do we move it ahead to the future? So, Marcellus deal- Armand Tume. Now, but this is why he was such a saving grace for me when he came to high school because I had nobody to talk funk with. For, for my first two years of high school, I was just kind of in my own bubble when it came to funk. Um, I mean, I enjoyed living in my own bubble. I could do that. You know, I'm, I'm only child. You know, I'm, I'm cool with that. But then he, he's he's leaving out a very important part of his first day of school. He was playing the bass. He was just kind of noodling around on the upright bass. So I knew he was coming. They said, yeah, we, we got a new drummer coming in, Amir Thompson. I was like, oh, cool, solid. And so I walk in the music room, and I see somebody on the bass. And I'm just kind of just kind of laying back, just chilling like <laughs> All right, well, who, who was this? And he's playing, doing it to death. He's playing James Brown on there. And I went, wait a minute. So I kind of walked up to him. I was like, yeah, uh, what you know about James Brown? And he looked at me. He said, no, what you know about James Brown? <laughs> <laughs> it was. And at that point, I man, man, you don't know how much, how happy I was that you came around. And for the, our last two years of high school, um, it was great to have that uh, that outlet. I could go and 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 really talk funk with him. Mother Load had come out in the Jungle Groove, all them James Brown records. Right, and um, he studied Jabbo and Clyde Stubblefield, all those Al Jackson, all those great 
R&B and soul drummers the same way I would study Ray Brown or Paul Chambers or Charles Mingus or Ron Carter. And uh, to the point where, to this very day, sh- should I reveal your, your nickname? Uh-oh. Yeah, hit me. Yeah. So I've called him Clyde ever since the day I, I met him because he's the closest to Clyde Stubblefield. Nobody else has studied Clyde Stubblefield as thoroughly as he, uh, as he has and can actually play like Clyde Stubblefield. So I, I've never called him Quest. I mean, you know, I do when, when I have to. You know, I, <laughs> I, understand, I, I understand circumstances. It's always been Bootsy and Clyde. Bootsy man. and Clyde. That's, that's what we call each other, you know? All right. So, Chris, there's – Yes, I don't, sir. Your, 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 your music vocabulary is, is so broad that I don't know – whether or not to go with your story and your journey in jazz or just your opinions on music, period. So we, we can go everywhere, baby. Well, we got to find out how he became a child genius, though. Yes, so. exactly. He, he will never admit this. So, well, I got to know, how old were you when you first started playing? Nine. Nine years old, yeah. based on my uncles dad, or? Just like you. Okay. You know, uh, my dad, Lee Smith, is also a bass player. Uh, my great uncle, Howard Cooper, also a bass player. And uh, so it's a family tradition. You know, I I, uh, I didn't really want to do anything else, maybe pro football at one point. Uh, but it was always about the base. What did, what, did you play uh, ball for a little bit? Street football. Oh, okay. You know. <laughs> you were in touch. <laughs> I know you played for a one, team. One, two, three, That's right. One, two, three, <laughs> Car coming, car coming. That's right, that's right, that's right. One, two, three, hold. God Get on the J bus. I'll fake it to you. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> it was upright. That's what you started on. I started on on, on electric bass. Oh, you started on electric. Okay. Yeah, and then I started playing the upright bass when I was eleven, and I was going to Pepper Middle School in Southwest Philly uh, because I had to play in the orchestra. Wait, where was Pepper? Uh, now out near uh, the airport. Yeah, yeah 80, I was going to say that wasn't Bartram. You yeah, were, no, it was past Bartram. It was it was actually near like by, Sharon Hill. It was behind Bartram. Near, like, like past Penrose Park, it was like so. Was that an hour to get to school? The suburbs, yeah. Oh, uh, big time. What would you take to get big there? Uh, a chartered SEPTA bus. No, damn. What yeah. is that? A <laughs> yeah. chartered? What Wait, is a chartered? Was there SEPTA such a thing? Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, we, we basically took what was the G bus, right? And but it was specific. It went straight to Pepper. Wow. Yeah, I never heard of such a thing. Yeah, man. And so uh, the 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 technical. Uh, the, the the exact address was 84th and Lyons Avenue. Uh, the school's now closed; doesn't exist. But uh, it was this it was the school built on top of a swamp. There was always a prediction that the school would literally sink at at, at some point. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was out there near the airport, near Island Avenue, past Lindbergh yeah. Boulevard. It, yeah. was, it was it was way out there. But uh, they had a great music program, so that's when I started playing upright bass. Really? Yep. And this is a public school, or yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So then, you went there all eight years of your. Uh, no, I went to Hamilton for for elementary school from uh, first to sixth, okay. and then Pepper seventh and eighth, and then Kappa nine through twelve. So what when you went to Kappa, especially those two years before? At what point are you, you know? dedicating your life to jazz at least the serious the seriousness level that yeah i saw you ask like what well there's a couple of things that happened um when i was in eighth grade still at pepper i met joey um he was there too no but um 
my string teacher, you, you remember um, Miss Keith? I think she was known as Miss Funk back then. Miss Funk, was yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So what a name! Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> so she was teach. She was my bass teacher at Pepper, and she said, "I think you're good enough to go to Settlement for their jazz program." Mm-hmm. And so I started going to Settlement Music School, and that's where I met Lovin' Hines and Joey D. Francesco and Antonio Parker and Donald Ward. All these, all the cats, all the cats, right? And uh, they were like, "Yo, you in eighth grade? You ain't even supposed to be here till till at least next year." Uh, but Joey was there. Right. So he was in eighth grade too. So uh, once I met Joey, we started practicing together. We started calling each other up on the phone every day. You know, he, you think, look, Joey DeFrancesco was the real child prodigy because he was gigging. He was making gigs in Philly when he was like nine years old. Yes, he was. Um, he was. His, his feet could barely touch the organ pedals, but. I mean, he, he knew like half the real book already, mm-hmm. and the fact that oh, this, to explain. All right, yeah. so the, so there's a real book and there's a fake book. Yeah, and why do y'all why thing. do y'all use the fake book more than the real book? It's cheaper. It's easier to get <laughs> get your hands on. Uh, so it's, it's the the real book would be the Wikipedia of, of jazz. all jazz songs yeah. in book form. Yeah. So when you're a jazz musician coming up, a saxophone player. Were there, were there various books? Were they just chord charts? Or well, were they, they would have, uh, you know, B-flat key, concert key, and E-flat key. So, so whatever depending on what you instrument play, you play. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So, so it's like sheet music. Yeah, for- yeah mm-hmm. but you, you basically, if you're a jazz musician, um, it would behoove you to at least know at least 80% of this book. Yeah. How big cat, is it? How thick is it? Um, it's pretty thick. I would, I would say about that big. You know, that's probably 300 songs? Uh, 200. And what kind of, what songs are they? Like, is it standards? Standards, standards, you know, Autumn Leaves, uh, Misty, you know, Take the A Train, all those those standard jazz songs. I mean, because part of the the biggest challenge of being a jazz musician is learning repertoire. You know, because you get on stage with some of those older guys, you know, turn around and say, body and soul. Mm -hmm. They don't want to hear that, oh, I don't know that. They're like, well, what, what you up here for? Get off the stage, you know. So that's part of the that's the biggest challenge there is just learning the repertoire. So, so how were you when you read music? Uh, when I started at Pepper, that, that's when I started learning reading music. Uh, so to the point where anybody can put anything because that's the thing is that I in my experience, musicians that are proficient at reading. Yeah, I know cats that live on the stage. They look at it. Right. They can play everything, but their feelings off. But then I know cats that have awesome feel that can't read a lick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, at what point? Well, there was always a myth that, uh, I, I, especially speaking to a lot of older jazz musicians, they always had this thing and they were scared to learn how to read because they said, well, if I learn how to read music, I'm not going to be able to get the feeling into it. But, uh, I mean, I, I think that myth was shattered by so many great legendary musicians. I mean, first of all, if you played in a big band, you had to learn how to read. So... Dizzy Gillespie, Charlie Parker, all these great musicians. I mean, obviously, they knew how to read music and write music as well. But uh, once I started playing in the orchestra at age 11 at Pepper, started taking private lessons, and I had to learn how to read music. And, you know, of course, at that time, you read music every day. Mm-hmm. So you, you, I was really good at it. You know, I, I think I consider myself a moderately good reader now because I, I don't do it every day. But uh, if you were to... I don't want to put myself on the spot, but uh, there are varying degrees of of of, of uh, you know challenge challenge when it comes to uh, the music that people give you to read. I'm, I'm fairly quick still. Yeah. You know. 
So just in front of you, bam, can you play this and you look and... I, you know, I give it the once over and I, I, I right away, I, I just try to look for the problem spots. You know, <laughs> you know, just like, okay, what is that? Okay, I think I got it, you know. And then nail it. Okay. Yeah, yeah that's kind of where I got off the train because <laughs> <laughs> reading jump charts is... is well, no, it's just hard for me. I mean, I'm certain that if I seriously applied it, yeah. it wouldn't be anything. But, I mean, you know, just reading drum charts and, okay, so this is the kick pedal and that represents the snare and this yeah. represents the high. Like, there's yeah. so many hours of practice you have to put into that, which I don't think I And would. there's so many different kinds of drum charts. Like, yes. Like, you know, sometimes they'll just give you a, a lead sheet with just the melody on it and you're left to your own devices on what to figure the out accent. where the accents are exactly yeah. Yeah. you know some will give you an actual drum part where they have all of the slashes and all the stuff on top and underneath <laughs> and like you said Wait. you know yeah, Wait, no, I'm I've seen like drum charts and I'm like that shit makes no sense at all so when some of the older cats come like when Tony Bennett comes through yeah. his guy like gave his drum charts and we're like looking at each other like he just gave his charts. We're like, oh, yeah, no. <laughs> just give us the MP3, bro. We'll, we'll start <laughs> straight up, <laughs> straight up. Oh, well, you know, speaking of uh, you, you're talking about Kurt Rosenwinkel, and he was turning you on to the Mile Vishnu Orchestra. Well, um, I would say that John McLaughlin and the Mile Vishnu Orchestra they had uh, legendarily difficult music. Oh yeah, none of it was in four. Right. You know, it was all in nine and eleven, shifting back and forth, five four, five eight, mm-hmm. eleven four, eleven eight, and uh, you know, like your eyes crossed listening to some of this music, right? Mm-hmm. Now imagine reading it. Uh, when I went on tour with with Chick Corea and John McLaughlin uh, in, a, in an all star group called the Five Piece Band, P E A C E, I I was literally scared. I thought Chick Corea and John McLaughlin together. Boy, I know I'm going to be doing some heavy reading on this tour. And Vinny, the great Vinny Caliuta, former Frank Zappa drummer of all right. people, played on that tour. And uh, John McLaughlin had this one tune. Um, uh, what was the name of this piece? I can't remember. But it was so difficult. I'll never forget. We had to jump on a conference call with Chick, <laughs> with, with Chick Vinny Caliuta, and Kenny Garrett, who played saxophone on the tour. And we are all sitting there trying to figure out now – how are you hearing this? Are you hearing it in five or you hearing it in 10? Or I mean, like what, 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 where, where's the downbeat? Yeah. <laughs> so, where's the one? Where's the pa- one? Yeah. Pa- part of me actually was relieved to hear Chick Corea of all people. Ask the question. You know, he was like, man, I'm having trouble finding out how to count this. And I'm like, okay, I don't feel so <laughs> bad. <at all. laughs> oh man, what song was it? And Vinny Caliuta was like, uh, yeah, we'll see. Think of the dotted quarter note. It's like that's the actual quarter notes. It's like doom, 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 and instead of counting it with like like with the eighth note groove, think of it as like a super slow five. What was the name of that song? Oh, old blues, new bruise. That that's the that's the record. That's the name of the song. Oh wow, okay, yeah, old blues, new bruise. Damn, even. Even my computer's like, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, Uh, or or new blues, old brews, something with blues and brews in it. And like, so it's a slow five and it's got all these accents in the middle of it. And I mean, I'm looking at this going, bro, 
I can't feel this. <laughs> and I'm thinking, well, we got a tour coming up. I better learn how to feel it and quit. Oh, so it wasn't any question of, well, maybe it's too difficult for you guys to let me just. No, no, no. We had to, we had to buckle down and, and figure it out. And I'll tell you, the whole time we were on that tour, when we played that song, you could literally see me. I'm on stage going, Sweating. one, <laughs> two, three, four, five, one, two. I, I was counting out loud and unashamed. I was like, I ain't getting lost in this tour. Wait, what year was this? Uh, 08, 08 and 09, we did oh, that tour. 10 years ago? Yeah. I'm thinking like, oh, post-high school. Oh, yeah, no, no, no. This was less than 10 years ago. Really? Yeah. Yo, what's up? This is Fonte, Fontigolo from Team Supreme. Black representation in media is very important to me. I think it's important to have our stories told by people who look like us and who have shared in our common experiences. Some of my earliest influences were Donnie Simpson. Uh, I would also say Tom Joyner, Angela Stribling, uh, Sherry Carter. They were just people who told our stories with a lot of class and dignity and were big inspirations to me. The next generation of influential black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be black today, told from a unique black perspective. From Bobby Schmurder to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, there's no limit to the range of Black stories, Black truths. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast, The Center Black Voices. It's NPR Noir. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR wherever you get podcasts. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So how many years did you do at Juilliard? Uh, I only stayed for a year. Uh, that's because I, I started gigging. Um Pretty much right after school started. Um, so why did you go to Juilliard? As you well know, um, I got to know Wynton Marcellus uh, yeah. toward our last couple of years of high school. And uh, knowing that all my jazz heroes lived in New York, I said, I got to get to New York somehow, some way. 
Uh, so I knew I was going to go to college and well, I knew I was going to go to New York, but <laughs> as, as cool as my mom is, I knew it wasn't going to be simple as, Hey mom, I want to move to New York and become a professional jazz musician. Uh, so I, I went to, uh, I applied to the new school, uh, Juilliard and the Manhattan school of music. And, uh, one of those three, if I can get in any one of those schools, at least I'll be here in New York. Uh, and I started working with Bobby Watson's horizon quintet. Uh, probably my first month in town. But that wasn't the first gig that actually took me on the road. Uh, first time I went on the road was uh, like on a steady basis mm-hmm. was probably, it was both Roy Hargrove's band and Freddie Hubbard's band. And this is after Juilliard? Yeah. So at what point did you, because I think everyone has that thing. Like I did like half a semester and then it's like, I got a record deal. I got, right. I got a gig. So like for you, what was it? I mean, did your mom know, like, okay. I think she knew because uh, once, uh, I would say once May rolled around, May of 90, uh, I was working a lot, so I knew the writing was on the wall. I said, my schoolwork's going to suffer because I'm I'm out playing every night. Um, I'm either going to have to make a decision, either really focus on on studies or go gig. So uh, I called mom from, from a pay phone. Uh, uh, on remember 50, those? On, was it yeah, raining? Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, on 56th, and right in front of Worldwide Plaza. I don't know why I was there, but uh, I called her from there. I said, Mom, I don't think I want to go back to Juilliard next year. And it was this long, like, minute and a half pause over the phone. And uh, I was like, Mom, you there? She's like, yeah, I'm here. Uh, so what are you going to do? I was like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I was like, but mom, I'm gigging. You know, I'm working a lot and, you know, I'm making money. She's like, where are you going to live? I was like, right, well, my, my friend Mark Carey, Mark Carey, who was. Ah, uh, yeah, uh, piano, yeah. keyboards, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was playing in Betty Carter's band at that time. And he had a place up in Harlem. And uh, he had some extra space. He said, I can move in with him. Well, I don't know Mark Carey. I got to meet him, make sure he's cool. <laughs> so she was a mom, mom. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the like, thing is, you were always an adult to me. So seeing you having. A mom, <laughs> a, a, a youth man, mom please. moment. Yeah, man. Well, see, man, uh, again, I'm going to go back to high school. I've always felt that both your parents, you know, even my my dad wasn't living with us, mm-hmm. you know, when I was growing up. Um, but I'll never forget how much, uh, how tightly knit your family was, man. And uh mm-hmm. I always thought of your dad, both your parents and my mom the same way. They they did not let us get away with too much, man. They didn't play it. They they weren't hearing none of that none of that crazy mess, you know. Um, and my mom always loved you, man. She liked the fact that I think she also liked the fact that I now had a funk brother, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, she she was like, God, finally somebody else you can listen to James Brown with. <laughs> Oh boy! So what was you said the the first gig you did was with Hubbard? Well, that was else? like that was like my first major major gig at, after I left Philly. What is that like? Like, is it intimidating? From you know, you, you studying? Yes, I know that you guys. Like, I didn't realize the point. You know, you guys are like reciting solos to each other, and I was yeah. like, whoa! I gotta now study. There was there was one <laughs> point when you. You and Joey were listening to, I'll never forget, you, you had Larry Young's Unity. Right. 
not Zoltron. That was the first cut. Zoltron, yeah. But it's the it's the 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 second song. Monk's Dream. Yes, it was. I think it was Monk's Dream. Yeah, yeah. It's Monk's Dream. It's Moon Train. But you guys were literally reciting every. You know, now I know that's common in jazz music. But I was like, wait, why are they they're studying the solos? Like, that's how far I got to go into this thing. Yeah, but you did that, man. Well, I did I mean, it to survive. See, I did right. it for survival because it's like if you can't get respect from – I mean, it's like in jail. Like you got to hit the biggest motherfucker. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> like you see the biggest motherfucker there, you hit him. Like you had to speak their language. No, I think it's survival on on that on our end too because uh, – Well, y'all used to also – if a cat was sad. <laughs> y'all would, y'all would let, y'all wouldn't even let him know. It's like, oh man, that cat's so sad, man. Like, I didn't want to be the sad cat. That well, you know what used to crack me up. Do you remember how Joey and Kurt used? To, see, Joey different. See, I feel bad because Joey's not here to defend himself. But <laughs> when we were in high school, boy, Joey used to mess with Kurt like terribly. Yes, be, because Kurt was, you know, he was he was super serious and he was not a traditional kind of guy. Yeah. He was playing great stuff, but it wasn't like straight traditional jazz. Yeah. So he'd be in the in the practice room, and you know he he would be on the piano. I actually didn't even know Kurt played guitar because he played a lot of piano in high school. Really? Yeah. So the first doing freshman and well, I knew he played sophomore. guitar, but I thought that was a secondary instrument because I, wow. I always used to see him on piano all the time. So he would be on the piano and be playing all these all these weird kind of you know polychords and all this stuff. And Joey <laughs> Joey would come behind and be like. Man, what is that shit, man? <laughs> Tell me, why don't you play some blues? And, wow. and Kirby like, get out of here, man. Leave me alone. And Joey's like, man, that's some bullshit. Get out of here. All right, so this leads me to, I will say that with, as far as Winton's concerned. Yeah. You've heard all the arguments. I'm certain that you've heard both sides. Oh, yeah. Of I've been, I've been deep in the eye of that hurricane. <laughs> I understand that. Yeah. Now, I mean, part of me, just from where I stand in hip-hop, mm-hmm. Were we standing hip hop? I mean, like no one wants to be seen as the grumpy old traditionalist and the guy that's only hanging on to the flag and that sort of thing. <laughs> and you know, especially with hip hop, you got older cats that need to contextualize their coolness by co-signing something young, right? Some progressive, like yeah. Quincy's the king of that. <laughs> yeah. Quincy always talks like he has a cough drop in his mouth. He's yeah, you know, I, lo- I love bro. <laughs> but it's it's like. I've heard everything. And probably the best analogy I heard that Winton has more, and as far as hip-hop comparisons, I've heard a, a jazz guy that I respect very much say that Winton is the puffy of the jazz movement. In other words, there was a point where, I guess in 78, where you know the, the M-Base Collective and all those guys were trying to Push forward. I mean, if you ask a a, a cat like uh, Dave Murray, mm-hmm. David Murray, I mean, his thing is like, well, you know, he came in a suit and killed our movement. Mm-hmm. So, but the, then, but I know that Winton's about tradition, right? And then when he did the 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 documentary with uh, on PBS, the jet with Ken, Ken Burns, Burns yeah. Yeah, then that really didn't help his argument. This is true. Much. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I appreciated it because right. there's stuff I didn't know about King yeah, Oliver. A lot, a lot of all. people got turned off by that. Right. Yeah. So it's like we're including you, jazz musicians. 
Right. Yeah. Especially jazz yeah. musicians. Yeah. So yeah. where do you stand as far as what he represents? I think Wynton Marcellus was was absolutely necessary um, for what it was that he did. Um, I, I do think... Um, you know that that old saying about the uh, you know killing a fly with a rifle. You know I do think um, <laughs> that's deep. I, I do think that in his desire to uphold the traditions of jazz, uh, I think he was quite divisive um, and harsh on a lot of musicians that came before, um, and in some cases after him came who, after yeah who really. Um, didn't see things the same way he did. Uh, I do find it interesting that, you know, you look at jazz in the 70s and you look at what was hot at that time, you know, the whole loft scene that was going on in New York, uh, you know, this this sort of, I don't know what you would call it, this sort of post-avant-garde kind of movement, you know, Lester Bowie was hot, um, Chico Freeman was hot, David Murray was hot, uh, Oliver Lake, uh, the AACM was doing great things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then a lot of the jazz legends, you know, your Art Blakey's, your Horace Silver's, mm-hmm. uh, they weren't getting the same kind of attention or the same kind of, of respect that they had been getting in the 50s and 60s. They, they, there was this sort of unspoken, uh, this, well, the, these guys are the old school. You know, I mean, they still play good, but they're not really contributing anything fresh to the canon. And then here comes this young, raw kid from New Orleans who can play the hell out of the trumpet like no one's ever heard before. And on top of everything else, he's brash and outspoken. That He pretty much came up and said, wait, hold, 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 the time up. All the stuff that y'all think is great, this is all straight bullshit. And even if you didn't agree with him, you had to go, whoa, oh, yeah, this dude has got some balls on him, you know? And he's backing it up with his and playing. And he's backing it up with his trumpet playing. Yeah. Now, add that he's got a brother almost more outspoken than him. <laughs> but that's the opposite. But his brother's the opposite, opposite. yeah. But, but he was, he, he, in terms of jazz tradition, he was very much on the same page. Now, now, now see, it, it, it's, it's interesting that um, my manager and I always talk about this. Uh, you really, you do realize who actually changed the course of jazz forever in the '80s was not a jazz musician; it was Sting. Yeah. yeah. When the Police broke up and Sting uh, decided to start his Dream of the Blue Turtles band, right? Um, the fact that he took two of Wynton Marcellus's band members that caused a riff in jazz that to this day has never really been resolved, I I think, to an extent. Think about something. In 1985, Wynton Marcellus had already won, I I think by that time he had already won four Grammys. Uh, He had already, he was already already acknowledged as like the seminal trumpet player of a a generation, even though he was only like 24. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, A protege of, of, of Albert Murray and Stanley Crouch, you know, so like, so he was known as an intellectual on top of a great trumpet player, and he was so well celebrated uh, for his, you know, embracing of the tradition and sort of resetting jazz's values. And he's got one of the greatest bands in jazz with his brother, the great Kenny Kirkland, Sean Ed Moffat on bass, and Jeff Tane Watts on drums. 
Sting comes around and says, hey, Bradford, Kenny, y'all come with me. And so this, this almost seemed very much like a Cain and Abel because, like, people were like, you left your brother to go play in a rock band? Sting, right. <laughs> what? You know. Sounds fun. And, <laughs> right. And so people were kind of like, well, well, but Bradford, I thought you, I, how could you do that? You know, if Bradford's like, look, I love straight ahead jazz, but I never I said I kick. wouldn't play anything yeah. else, you know. So imagine when he did Buckshot LaFunk. Like, yeah. what was that shit? Like, yeah, so <laughs> I do know that there was a very, very bad split between them for, for a long time. Uh, they've since made up. I, I, I know it's been all, all good, but musically speaking, I really don't believe Winton ever really recovered from that. Really? I don't think so. I, I think musically, because that band was so killing musically, uh, he wasn't going to find anybody else to replace somebody like Bradford or Kenny Kirk. So you're saying now, okay, here's the weird thing. I just recently found an oral history on Live at Blues Alley. Yeah. And to hear Winton tear that album apart, I mean, an album that I studied, you know. That's a great album. So I thought. I think so. So I <laughs> so, thought. Right. But to hear him and then read further, because the, the thing is, is that with 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 rock criticism and, and, and hip hop, as, as far as journalism is concerned, I never delved deep into how jazz records were perceived or, you know, got a, a bunch of downbeat back issues to see yeah. how they were, you know, unless it was like looking up on the corner or something, you know, by miles. But I never knew, because in my head, when when Jay Mood and right. sort of his 86 to That's right. 88 period, I thought that, like- That period immediately after Bradford and Kenny went with Sting. See, but I didn't see that as a down period. But if you're trying to compare it, are you saying that that 86, 88 period of, of Winton would be the equivalent of post-payback James Brown? Like- no, I wouldn't say that. But I would say that just mentally speaking. Because I thought he was trying to push even further experiment. And then when he got to the 90s, doing like the low... The New Orleans the, thing. Yeah. yeah. The, the whole 86, you know, those, those albums you talk about, Jay Mood, Live at Blues Alley. Mm -hmm. I mean, those are virtually only the two albums he made before he turned and kind of went straight traditional. And went, uh, went straight to his New Orleans thing. And, um, you know, he helped build Jazz in Lincoln Center. Um, so I always wonder, like, how much of that was because of what happened with Branford and Kenny. Like, had Branford and Kenny not left his band to go with Sting, I'm sure Winton's career would have been a lot different. Different, yeah. yeah. Just for for context, so when, yeah. when jazz musicians refer to straight ahead jazz, yeah. What is that referring to? Like, who are some of the artists? Most that of the time, they, they, they refer, well, they're referring to a style of jazz that is is, is kind of coming out of 50s, uh, hard bop, you know, Art Blakey, Hard Silver, Cannonball Adderley, uh, danceable, quote unquote, jazz, you know, like blues based kind of jazz. So you you're know? saying not bop as in, because I knew that at, at a point when they started speeding it up. Right. It was to discourage the dancing. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah damn. Right. So, but, yeah, Fast Bop was more like, hey, just watch us and right, stop dancing. Right. Ah, okay. Yeah. So they were the DJ of the moment. Yeah. You know, you, but they would still call that straight ahead, you know. 
Uh, I think when things started changing, it was like when the avant-garde movement started coming around and um, it became less about, it, it became less so much about overt uh, or, or, or I should say uh, uh, sort of recognizable traditional melodies mm-hmm. uh, or traditional 4-4 rhythms, you know, like Ornette Coleman kind of blew it out of the water in, in the 50s and Cecil Taylor came around and uh, Charles Mingus's music started getting a little more abstract uh, to the point where even some jazz fans were like, well, I'm, I don't really quite know what this is. You know, <laughs> Andrew Hill. In, so wait, in you're the, saying that, and now I'm like, the shape of jazz to come was sort of like met with, because uh, now it's considered, or at least beneath the under, like those records oh, by yeah, Mingus think, are like considered. Yeah, no, there were a lot of people who. Uh, initially. Yeah. They just were, felt it was like heroin music. They were or, like, well, you know, <laughs> I, I'm not sure I can get with this Ornette Coleman dude. You know, oh yeah, a lot of people felt that way. You know, I, I think uh, the masses did dig it, uh, but it was definitely a, a musical shift that it took a lot of people some t- took some time to adjust to it. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work and traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. You came out as a young lion. Right. Like, when I knew, like, oh, this means... things. Some article in Time Magazine where they were trying... You remember that? Hell yeah, dude. That's right. That was like, whoa, Jesus Christ. Yeah. Chris is in Time Magazine. You know what I mean? So it was like... There, there was was were young lions only referred to as the class of eighty five to yeah we were the Winton spinoffs so yeah. young lions were referred to as post Winton jazz Pre- yeah, absolutely baton holders yeah 
Yeah, we we were you know we were considered the uh, you know we we were the Jeffersons to Winton's All in the Family. Oh, okay, you know. okay. <laughs> All right, wow, that's an interesting way to put it. So <laughs> then, how do you feel about the post generation after us, um, or, or, or like post generation, post Winton, or like our generation, or, or well, I or guess after from us? from after your period. There's probably two generations that have passed. Right. That's now, right. I know me personally with musicians, again, like the 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 universal positioning, the universal quest love positioning of, you know, whatever I represent is supposed to be all knowing, all accepting and yeah, you know, kind of diplomatic about the shit. So I haven't like <laughs> Exactly, been like there's some bullshit halado. Like, <laughs> right, right, right. Bullshit halado. But there, there are a few musicians that are mad at me about my outspokenness of gospel chops. So in R and B, oh yeah, just I all the feels and all the. I'm just, with you, yeah, dude. Play everything, but how is that in your world? Because there are some cats that I like. I know not to fall for the okie doke, and the okie doke. Is like if someone does more fancy shit than they do straight ahead shit, then that might be a problem. So, I think oftentimes, you know, obviously, technique is um, it's a great thing to have. I think it's something that one has to strive for if you want to be the best at what you do. Obviously, it's about taste. It's about when it's it's, it's about when you decide to pull your your flash card. You know what I mean? I think oftentimes, because not a lot of musicians have a lot of great technique, when you find a few that do, it can be intimidating. But on the flip side, if that person with the great technique just jams it down your throat all the time, it's going to make it really bad for the ones that actually have good technique who who have taste. Like for me, Wayne Shorter. Um, Wayne Shorter has, just technically speaking, on the saxophone, Mm -hmm. he has... The fast, he has some of the fastest guns since John Coltrane. Probably the fastest since John Coltrane. But Wayne always picks the perfect spot to hit you with that. He he never it that's never his mo. He, he doesn't come out the he, gate. He, with, he never yeah. comes out of the gate with you know. You know he's just you know. Subtle. You're like ooh, what was that? You know what I mean? <laughs> he makes you want to hear it again. You know what I mean? And I think the whole thing with the gospel chops. I'm with you all the way, bro, because, I mean, so many times um, I, I always tell young, younger musicians, particularly drummers and bass players, look, that stuff you're doing is great, all right? But do you want to have a million YouTube followers or do you actually want to work? Man, talk about it. You know, <laughs> do you want somebody to call you for a gig or do you want somebody to just pass around YouTube videos and tell, tell you how fast your chops are? I would think in a practical world you would want a gig, and if you want a gig, you're gonna have to learn to put put them put that shit away. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and I, I love using you in, as an example, man. I was like, look, listen to Questlove. I mean, there's a reason why you are who you are. And I'm, now I'm gonna gas you up a little bit, man. Oh, uh, I I can honestly say that after having played with so many of my drum heroes, just jazz and funk, you know, having played with. Bernard Purdy finally got a chance to play with Jabbo and Clyde. Oh, um, Mike Clark, right? Steve Gadd, 
yo, man, you are easily like one of the top 10 of all time in terms of holding that pocket. Mm. Come on, bro. Who's, who else plays that pocket like you, man? Seriously. He's not good with though. He don't have it all. Right. He actually is sweating. No, and and our, our other homeboy, Lil John Roberts. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Lil John, he just he be holding the pocket down. I know how much I know how many chops he's got. Did he go to school with y'all too? Wait, he cause he's so, from Philly. My, my, okay, so <laughs> part part He was an all city band, part but three, he didn't go to Lil yeah. John was younger than me. Right. So part of me felt like, okay, as an eleventh grader. Drummer for Janet, guys. Just yeah, not not yeah yeah right, not yeah not John. that little John. right. <laughs> it's funny because the first time I met that little John, yeah, back in '94, I was like, wait, what? What happened to your hair? Like I'm because both <laughs> of them had moved to Atlanta, right? John Roberts. But uh, no, it's funny about John Roberts is because he was, I think, two years younger than me. Right. So when I got to All City, I mean, he looked like. His name was Little John Roberts. Like, he looked like a kid. He just, so naturally, I just thought, like, oh, this motherfucker's playing the tambourine or something. <laughs> and, I'm, you know, I'm on the drum set, and he was cool. Like, I'm on his drum set. Mm. I'm getting things, tuning stuff up the way I want it, you know. And then uh, who's the the, the All-City uh, uh, Bill Whitaker. Director? Yeah, Mr. Whitaker. I was like, okay, uh, uh, what's, his, what's his name? Uh Amen. Omar? Yeah, right. Amen. <laughs> yeah, right. He was like, yeah, you, you can play a tambourine on, on good news. <laughs> <laughs> or Hill, or he gave me a throwaway song, like Hill with the Lord Hides or oh, something. Oh, yeah. Like oh, one of the old Maynard Ferguson songs or whatever. <laughs> and to watch this little. Because you had to get your ass up. Like, that was my Martin Pretty Ricky, what they call <laughs> it. <laughs> that was my moment. That's when, like, I was dead serious. Okay, I, 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 I now have to shed five hours which it's like usually the neighbors would start bitching around 10 p.m yes right so you know that leaves me limited space from like 4 to 10 p.m to do but even then i'm like okay practice on my pad and all right don't wake dad up hit hit the bed you know the 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 mattress something silent right but it was like i gotta get i gotta get some technique and get like that pressure came on me at 16 17 but little john roberts was like he when I saw him drumming, that's when I knew I had to get my shit together and get it right. Yeah, yeah. But the weirdest thing about it is my approach was to actually do less. Yeah. Because I know every drummer, like there was a point where, you know, it was the gospel group, what, what commissioned? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so commissioned, like yeah. those cats started getting more technique into their playing and stuff. Right. And then all, like all tri-state area musicians just started following that's suit. right. And, you know, and, you know, by that point, James Brown, like his his music was starting to uh, come alive more in hip hop, 87, 88. So, I mean, it's a lot for you to just what 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 I, what I would call use the force and just damn like all these guys want to show how fancy they are. And I got to play less to get attention. And it's it was a you, hard you, thing. You navigated that brilliantly, my friend. <laughs> no, it was hard though. Like for the first four years to just do nothing while all these other cats are just dancing around me, getting all the oohs and ahs and stuff. And you know, even now, like no, it's still the equivalent. Do it no, it's still the equivalent it. of in hip hop, the dude that can freestyle. Like, 
and get all the oohs and ahs and whatever, yeah, so, but okay. can't make a record to save his fucking life. It's like too right. short. It's That's like too right. short versus cannabis. Exactly right. <laughs> the, right the tortoise right. in the hair. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. So it's. But I I also feel my dad taught me a trick. Whenever he would audition a musician, yeah, he's like, mm, make him play the ballad. Yeah. Like That's the right. slowest, easiest song ever. Mm-hmm. And I will watch many musician trip. Fail. Yeah. Do, right. you a, do you got a go to? Well, I mean, uh, my dad's songs were ballads, so like I would want to do like the 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 fast, funky, you know, stuff to see like how they adjust. Right, it. right. And Dad was like, "No, you're you're going to find out the truth about a musician. Always make him play the ballads. That's right. So, you give them the simplest things ever, and they will always mess up because discipline is one of the hardest things ever. Absolutely. So, okay, and and I'm not lying about you being technically proficient as far as, in my opinion, one of the greatest musicians working right now in music. How do you, I mean, what is, what's the conversation in your head? Because a lot of times I'll hear references. Like, it's like you still have hip-hop techniques to your soloing. Right. In terms of, like, I'll hear references, like, oh, okay, that, that was the theme to the Jefferson. Right, 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 right. <laughs> or right, whatever. Right. But it's like, what's in your head? Because for me, the pressure of soloing, is one of the hardest things. It's, it still gives me anxiety to this I feel day. You. Yeah. But like, do you get anxiety to solo, or is it just like? Um, it it depends. Depends on the song. It, it depends on the whole whatever circumstances are happening at that time. Um, I still have head trips about playing the electric bass, and I shouldn't. And I'll tell you why. I, I have hit. Well, because even after all these years, I still get the. I didn't know you played electric bass. You know? <laughs> I'm like, damn. So, uh, wait, even after nine albums? Absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, people still see me with an electric bass and they're like, what? Really? I'm just like, Ugh. seriously? How did y'all miss that? <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. And so, like, and, and I see, like, because I don't play the electric bass every day, like, on game. I mean, I play enough electric bass where I think my, my technique is still respectable uh but i know that you get like some cats out here like our, our homie Derek hodge mm-hmm. who who really does it uh you know all these legends like victor wooten and marcus miller and uh cats who really 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 do it on a regular basis and uh i don't know every now and then i, I put the electric bass on and i'm thinking somebody out there in the audience is going He's not as good as Marcus Miller. Oh, <laughs> Are you serious? Which yeah. is true. Yeah. But I, I I, still get really uptight about playing the electric bass. Now, now, how's this for irony? Except when me and you are playing together. <laughs> well, that's Seriously. weird, though, because of the gazillion times I've seen you, most of the times it's like your electric, like when your, um, when your Family Fair project came out. Right. I've seen you a lot. Like, I always felt that you you've devoted half of your projects to That's what I've tried to do. Tradition and right. push it forward, you know. You know, speaking of that that recording of Family Affair, I think that was when there was a couple of things that happened between 98 and 2001. That was when I started to and and in retrospect, I wonder if if this was wrong of me to have or or if it was reactionary, but by 97, it was kind of like, 
Oh, the Young Lion, Christian McBride, Ray Brown, protege, Wynton Marcellus, you know, Little Brother Club. You know, it's just like. You wanted to be your own man? I'm like, come on, y'all, damn. I mean, obviously I I loved Ray Brown. You know, Ray Brown, for for me, was like the Muhammad Ali of of jazz bass of all time. Mm -hmm. Uh, Wynton Marcellus, great, you know, uh, mentor, big brother to have. But I knew my musical view was a lot wider than that. So I thought, wow, I'm getting painted into this corner. I want to do this other stuff. And uh, I think they're going to start tripping once I decide to do that. <laughs> so in, 90, in 98, I knew that I, I said, I, I want to do something a little more, a little more electric, a little more on, on this side, you know. <laughs> and so I hooked up with George Duke. Oh, man. A lot of people in the jazz world, they were like, I, I, I took, it, took it like this. Christian, we really love you, so we're just going to let you have this one. We're not even going to acknowledge Give that you, you did this. We're just going to be like. That's funny because when I saw the fonts, when I, okay, so the yeah. day the album, usually yeah. on the first week of your album's coming out, yeah. I'm buying it, and when I see it and saw the fonts, <laughs> at first I was like, wait, did he do a funk record and not call me? What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> I'm in my feelings. <laughs> so you knew from the font it, it was it was from funky. the font, right? But then I was like, because I know, I figured that your entry into the music world was the same as my entry in high school, right? And I was like, okay, because I know that you got a side of you that wants to reference Bootsy and James Jamerson and Jaco Pastores and all these, you know, Lewis Johnson, right? Like, there's a whole another side of you that. You have yet to express. I mean, you'll 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 salt and pepper some shit in a cut or two with 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 <laughs> your record. But then when I saw that, I was like, okay, he's this is going to be his 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 flag planting. Right, right. Now I never read the reviews of that record. There were none. <laughs> what was the general because again like and what was the name of the record what was the uh, family, a family affair. affair family affair this is family yeah. affair record. okay which is weird because you you swung and i love that interpretation of it thank you he did a, a swinging interpretation of 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 family of Sly's, Sly? yes okay. of Sly's song so it's also wait i forgot to tell you uh is that the one with the open sesame yes Dude, oh, you ever talked to Ronald Bell about that? No. He loves you forever for that. Really? Yes. <laughs> because he, in his head, he envisioned all that stuff as serious jazz. And right. For you to interpret Open Sesame the way that you did. Really? Oh, man. That made it. That made it. I always wanted to know if you well, ever knew that you made his life with that. I'll tell you what. After Family Affair, um, I got a call from Verdine White. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll never forget, like, like almost being frozen for a couple of days. <laughs> you know, like, man, we just wanted to tell you we got your, we got family, we got getting to it and family affair on the tour bus, and we checking you out, man. We love. Uh, I'll write a song, song for, for you. you. Yeah, wow. I was like, uh, oh, Elizabeth. Wait, I know, I know, you have crazy stories. Uh, I know that if she's on your record, you have a crazy Vesta story. I was about to ask. Yeah. I actually don't, man. Um, what? No, but she was she was pretty mellow, man. Um, what? I, I actually didn't know her. George Duke knew her. Um, I, I brought in these songs that I wanted to record, and uh, not 
Shaka was originally supposed well, to sing it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wait, part of me. All right. Yeah. Since she's been on the show, yeah. she yeah. stands people up famously. Right. And then you, she'll send her best girls, though. Right. You, <laughs> you know that Shaka was supposed to do Don't Look Any Further? Real? You mean with, with Dennis Edwards? Yes. Yeah. No kidding. Stood him up. Um, Shaka was supposed to do uh, the, the Power, power. with Snap. Yeah. Stood him up. She's Penny world Ford. famous for oh, like. Oh, bless her. Heart. Yeah. Penny Ford, not Martha Washington. But she Penny was, Ford. That was, yeah. Oh, yeah, right. she didn't see. Oh, wow. Okay. Penny Ford. But she said, I'll send the best girls. Yeah. Well, she I, her, I met Penny Ford through Shaka. She was singing background <laughs> yeah. with her at that time. Yeah. 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 So, I, like, so George, so I brought in these songs, a couple of vocal tunes, and uh, George said, Well, who you want? I said, uh, Well, I want to get Shaka. He was like, You want to make the call or, or, or you want me to make the call? I was like, Well, you know. I know Shaka, but your George do, you know. So you you make the call. So uh, um, he said, "All right, I'll call her." He's like, uh, "Yeah, Shaka's down." You know, she wants to do it. <laughs> um, I guess maybe a week later, he said, "Man, something went down. Shaka ain't gonna be able to make it now." I was like, "All right." Uh, he's like, "But how you feel about Vesta?" I was like, "Oh shit, yeah, okay, <laughs> great." Um, so Vesta came in and. And nailed it. And uh, Will Downing came in. Mm-hmm. Uh, George Duke gave him the greatest nickname I've ever heard for Will Downing. T- just take a while, guess what what he called him. Ooh, Down. Is it based on face? It's based on his initials. W- WMD? W- WD40. W- <laughs> <laughs> All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work and traffic. So slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. What was the story behind your tribute for James Brown and the aftermath of, of that? Yeah, I was going to say, oh, yeah. give us the, you, the 
the tribute. Yeah, it was. Um, Your James Brown story is the yeah, best. J- um, <laughs> yeah. So getting to you finally. Oh, working with James. Working Brown. with James yeah, yeah. Brown. Oh man. Um, you gotta let our audience hear it. I, I know I, the story, I, but I'll, I'll do my best to give you a condensed version because it's long. But the 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 gist of it is, we got time today. We do. All yeah, right, on. we we got time today, cuz right on. Go in. Uh, the gist of it is that uh, you know, as this man knows, uh, you know, James Brown's been like my my bone marrow. So uh, by the time I leave Philly to move to New York, James Brown was in jail. And so I'm writing James Brown letters like once a month, you know. <laughs> and I I know he's not getting them, you know, because I'm 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 sure he's getting hundreds of them per day. I was like, it's all good. I just want him to know that I love him, you know. So uh, 1993. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very Christopher McBride thing for you to do. Y'all know. And so uh, in in 1993, I'm I'm on my first tour with Pat Metheny. And uh, we're playing the Montreux Jazz Festival, and um, I'm backstage, and uh, I'm walking around, and I I didn't look at the schedule. So I walk by one of the production doors, and it says James Brown stage plot. I went, what? So I knocked on the door. I was like, excuse me, uh, is James Brown performing? He's like, yeah. I said, when? I said, tonight. I was like, what? He said, yeah. He's coming on after y'all. What? <laughs> said, oh shit! <laughs> and so uh, that's I had, how you know you're a busy jazz musician. I had no that idea. Like we were opening for James Brown. So uh, that night, uh, you know, I see St. Clair Pinckney and Danny Ray and oh, Martha man. High, all the yeah. James Brown. Is crew this the day. first time you've seen them? Yeah. How do you even well, enter? You mean first time I? Well, I mean, I'm sure that in your travels you saw like Maceo and hearing that. Right. But, right. Because of your level of standum, <laughs> how do you how do you approach how do you nuance the approach to let them know right without freaking them out? I I got lucky, and I'll tell you why. Because out of all them guys that were standing in the wings, Ron Laster, I knew I, I knew them all. They're standing in the wings and they're watching us, and I'm thinking, oh man, this is my shot. There was one brother who I didn't recognize. He was a young dude. It turns out he had just joined James Brown's band like three months before. And it was obvious that, you know, he had that rookie look about him. Mm -hmm. You know, he was kind of like standing by himself and, you know, kind of with the band, but not really, you know. And he was like, man, you you sound great, man. You know, it's a pleasure to meet you. I said, yeah, man, you too. What's your name, brother? His name was Robert Thompson, also known as Mousy. Mousy Thompson is his name. Uh, He said, yeah, I just started playing drums with Mr. Brown a couple of months ago. And so I think he was relieved to meet somebody close to his age mm-hmm. yeah. that he could kind of roll with. So me and Mousy started rolling that night. We started hanging and talking, and I found a little bit of his history. He had played with Chuck Brown. He's from D.C. He played with Chuck Brown. He played with Wilson Pickett mm. before he got with James Brown. So, Is he four on the floor? Uh, only because James made him. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but he, he is very funky. And so uh, – I got into the James Brown crew initially through Mousy. Okay. Uh, so Mousy was kind of, you know, uh, uh, um, metaphorically kind of took my hand and said, hey, guys, this is Christian McBride. This is the brother y'all just saw. And then, oh, Christian. So I met St. Clair and Danny Ray. And then I started kind of working my way in. And <laughs> uh, 
the 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 final straw came the next year in '94 when James played the Apollo and he did his his final what what Apollo turned out record. to be his final live at the Apollo record. Uh, that's where I met Martha High. Right. Martha High was the mother hen of the entire James Brown crew, right. and so Mousy introduced me into Miss High, and then once I met Miss High, that was pretty much you know here's your VIP pass you know, um, and then but do um, they know you're Kristen McBride? They did shortly after the Apollo gig, getting to it came out. And so okay. then they started putting two and two together. They were like, well, wait a minute. Oh, that's that's who that is, wow. you know. Um, so 95, I'm on tour with this Verve Records all-star band with Jimmy Smith. Uh, would you say stand-up, my, my level of <laughs> yeah, stand-up? Yeah. So I knew that one of James Brown's jazz heroes was Jimmy Smith. The great jazz organist. Jimmy Smith was on this Verve All-Star tour. So I said, uh, uh, James Brown, we were all playing the Vienna Jazz Festival. And James Brown was staying in the same hotel. And I said, if I ever get to meet James Brown today, I'm going to drop that I'm playing with Jimmy Smith. <laughs> and so uh, by that time, I knew Mr. Brown's bodyguards. And he says, hey, man. Uh, <laughs> you just plotted. Yeah, oh, oh man, right. dude. Slow and methodical. Well, first of all, you think the album <laughs> get into it, right. yeah, which right, I knew right. was a little smoke signal, like. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah, right. Yeah, all right, all right. Yeah, right. And then once you heard the track, you were like, wait a minute, that's good at the Right, right, exactly. Exactly. And so, uh, yeah, so Reginald Simmons was his name. Mr. Simmons introduced me to James Brown, and uh, he's like, Mr. Brown, how you doing? I, I briefly met you at the Apollo last year. I'm friends with Mousies. It's uh uh, oh, that's right, son. Yeah, yeah, you, you, you the bass player. I said, yeah, yes, sir. I said, I'm playing with Jimmy Smith tonight. He's like, what? <laughs> well, you know I love Jimmy Smith, man. And so, uh, you know, we just he just sat there and rapped and just talked about jazz. And still then, it was still not like, you know, just – I was just geeking out. We didn't really have any real meaningful conversations. So I think everything finally took shape. Uh, right after that, I said, uh, "Okay, I got to stop all this, all this fan stuff, and actually come up with something. Mm-hmm. What do I want to do with James Brown? What's my dream?" I said, "Well, I know I'm not going to ever be in this band. He's not going to ask me to do that. I'm not sure you would, I would do it, dude. Wouldn't you? I don't know, man. Just, just I've heard you did too it. much. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm like, I, I, I really know. So have we." You know, I mean, it was almost like you told me, because I remember once asking you, had you ever met MJ? And yeah. you were like, yeah, nah, I, I'd rather just... Don't, yeah, don't I was like, why heroes. would you want to meet James Brown? Right, yeah. right. Well, I, I thought if I ever, if James Brown actually ever, uh, in the in the unlikely event, he actually did call me to join his band, I'm thinking, what would I do? I was like, I, I just don't know, man. I, I don't want to be putting on them red <laughs> red tails every night and, and <laughs> bow ties. <laughs> and, <laughs> that's Playing right. Ten note. <laughs> 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 Ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> that's right. And uh, Miss High asked me that one time. She said, would you join the band if James Brown asked you? And I went, uh, she said, you better not. <laughs> I was like, yes, ma'am. Okay. <laughs> so anyhow, I, I said, I want to do a jazz project with James Brown, because I know how much he loves jazz. He's always name-dropping the jazz cats. Uh, maybe we could do that solo on top record live. He did this really... Uh, with his soloing? Some, 
Yeah, because I figured I would. <laughs> I figured he wouldn't do it dang, unless dang, I dang, let him dang, do dang, that. Dang, you know, dang, dang, dang. <laughs> we, we only show us in the key of D, no matter what. <laughs> That's right. No matter what the, the song, the actual key is in. You know, uh, so uh, down deep. I said, let me ask James Brown if he'll be interested in doing soul on top. With a big band, you know, I would write new arrangements of his favorite jazz standards, and he could play organ and sing, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, be like a solo on top 2.0, you mm-hmm. know. So I, I go back to writing letters, you know. So writing him these letters, send them to his office. I'm thinking, okay, yeah, I know letters are kind of kind of effective, but not really, you know. I keep sending them letters, keep sending them letters. And uh, finally he came to New York. This is in 97, and um, – Mr. Simmons sees me again. I'm backstage here at Radio City. And uh, Mr. Simmons says, uh, oh, Mr. Brown, uh, Mr. McBride is here. You remember Mr. McBride, right? And James Brown said, yes, I do, Mr. Soul on Top. Mm. Ah. And, and that's when I realized he, he had started getting these letters. And so he invited, uh, he invited me out to dinner with his entourage that night. So now, now the rubber's hitting the, hitting the ground, you know. What y'all eat? Uh, oxtails. That's right. Like into the crib. Uh, ox, oxtails and champagne. <laughs> Yo, wow! I love it. Classic. I love it. That's so black. Okay, ain't it? <laughs> I love it. We went to Victor's Cafe on Fifty Second and Broadway. He, he ordered oxtails all around. He didn't even ask anybody what they want. Oxtails, everybody. Oxtails and champagne. That's a song title. Right, I'm about to say yeah. <laughs> oh man. So. Uh, that night, we actually started talking about maybe doing the Soul on Top project. And a uh, couple months later, actually a couple weeks later, because this was Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving in 97. Uh, I'm sorry, 96. He invited me down to Augusta for his Christmas party. And uh, I said, oh, man, I can't believe how good this is going. I'm like, I'm in the James Brown crew. This is trippy. And uh, things went really bad at the Christmas party. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um uh, Wait, let me get it ready. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. There you go. Yeah, so I'm sitting there at the party hanging with Mousy because that was my dog. He he was my entry into the James Brown camp. And what year, what year is this? This was this was Christmas of 90, 96. Oh, wow. Okay. And um, I'm sitting there at this table with Mousy and Martha Hyde, Danny Ray, all these people sitting at the table. And uh, James was, he was cool. He, you know, when I got there, he was like, Mr. McBride, welcome to Augusta. Glad to have you here, son. Love everything you do. You know, thank you, sir. Get to the end of the party. We're all taking pictures. And uh, I'm sitting there posing with Mr. Brown and, and, and Miss High. And just before the camera clicks, James Brown leans over. He says, uh, I'm hip to you, son. I know what you're doing. You can't fool me. I said, what, 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 what are you talking about, Mr. Brown? I said, nah, don't give me that. I know what you're doing. Got my eye on you. Trying to infiltrate my organization. Oh, shit. <laughs> so, you trying to take Miss High and my drummer from me. Oh. I was like, wait, 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 Mr. Brown. What you talking about? You know, and then he like kind of walks off like pissed, right? And so, oh, you, you thought he was you... playing around? I just... thought he was playing, right? And so I looked at Martha High, I was like, uh, you want to help me out yeah, here? Yeah, smooth this shit out. You know, she was like, "Oh, don't don't pay him no mind." You know, he, he's just tripping. I was like, "I don't know." He looks, <laughs> really he looks true. really mad. And so, uh, 
I tell Mousy what happened. I'm freaked out. Like my childhood heroes pissed at me. Told you, know? you bro. Y'all know, right? <laughs> <laughs> Told you, bro. <laughs> and so uh, he was like, oh, man, don't worry about Brown. You know, see, you, you, you just getting in too close. I said, yeah, apparently so. <laughs> you know? And so uh, I call him on the phone a couple weeks later. We're in the new year now. And uh, I said, Mr. Brown, you know, I just wanted to check back in, make sure everything was cool about that incident at the party and, you know, about those letters I sent you with the soul on top thing. He's like, uh, so let me explain something to you. I was like, uh-oh. I, I could just feel it coming. I was like, his voice was tense. You know, he was like, first of all, I ain't making no record with you. Oh. He's like, uh, I think you got something mixed up, son. Uh, if we gonna make a record there, it's gonna be my record. Oh. I don't make no guest appearances on nobody's record. Oh. You understand? This is gonna be a James Brown record. I ain't singing on your record. Who do you think you are? I was like, uh, what your stomach feel like at this moment? Like you like, on the phone? What, what do you feel? I was like, I was well, I, I was, I, I was too shocked to feel anything, mm. you know. And he was just like, uh, uh, you think you gonna write some arrangements for me? Uh, uh-uh, son, I don't need nobody writing no arrangements for me. I ain't doing no record with you. Secondly, had bullet points. <laughs> oh man, yeah, he was like, uh, I listened to your record all the way through, Uh-oh. and. uh that record ain't nothing. Oh, no, no, no. I said, oh, no. You can't play. You can't play no bass. You got everybody telling you the great bass player. Oh. You, you can't play no bass. In fact, I'm going to sue you for getting to it. Oh, shit. Oh, yeah. oh. <laughs> exactly. How did I break out in tears? I would have broke out in tears. Well, I was about to break out in tears until he until he went here. He says, uh, he said, you just like everybody else. You stealing my music and, and, and trying to get rich. And then I was like, I, I had the audacity to stand up for myself. I was like, wait, 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 wait a minute, Mr. Brown. <laughs> he said, what? I said, sir, do you have the CD? Because he was like rambling, you know. Yeah. I was like, sir, do you have the CD handy? He's like, no, nah, I don't have it nearby. I said, look, when you get the CD, will you please open up the liner notes and read the entire paragraph I wrote about you? And, you know, how much you, you've been an inspiration to me and how much uh get uh get it together inspired this tune and you know all this other stuff and he is it was weird because he paused he went you wrote about me in the liner notes i said mr brown all he had to do was read it no you should don't, don't say that <laughs> and he was like uh james brown ain't gotta read <laughs> he was like well in that case i still love you uh, uh, but i ain't making no record with you Right, so happy medium. All, wow. But see, all of this is so strange because a couple of days later, I get a call saying, uh, "Mr. Brown wants you to perform at his birthday bash." Yo, <laughs> 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 and I'm like, "Yo, this is trippy," and I'm thinking I should say no because yeah. I, I don't want this drama, you know. Um, but I'm an idiot, so I, I took the gig, right? I said, I'm going to go down and play with James Brown for his birthday bash because he asked me, right? And so uh, I go, this, this is May of, of 97. Um, he had me play with some house band down there and um, at the Bell Auditorium where, where the Sex Machine album was made. And so when I get there, Mousy, you know, it was, it was funny because like the whole band was like, Yo, man, we heard what happened. We're sorry, dog. <laughs> you know, we, we, we told you he's crazy, man. You know, and so uh, Mousy said, man, Brown is backstage. You want to say hi? Wish him a happy birthday? I was like, all right, I, I guess I'll go wish him a happy Damn, birthday. Damn, you love torture. <laughs> I know, right? So I go back to say 
uh, say hello and wish him a happy birthday. I was like, happy birthday, Mr. Brown. He was like, Mr. McBride, good, great to see you, sir. Um, what song are you going to play tonight? You going to play that song you stole from me? Oh, man. <laughs> and, and so I was just like, you know what? I should go to the airport right now. Right? <laughs> um, but no. But no. Right? <laughs> I got I to gotta be loyal. And so uh, I played my one little song, and at the end of the night, um, James Brown is on stage. He says, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I want you to give a big round of applause. Yeah, all of the performers this evening. Uh, let's hear for the Blues Brothers. Uh, let's hear for Kenny Wayne Shepherd. Uh, Wait, the lineup. Yeah, I know, right? Kenny Wayne Shepherd? Kenny Wayne Shepherd and the Blues Brothers. Let's hear for Eddie Floyd, brother Eddie Floyd. Uh, let's hear for Mother of Two. Uh, what? Yeah, it, it, was, it was out. Let's hear for my daughter, Yama. Uh, let's hear for Roosevelt Johnson. And <laughs> so far, he, he left me out. And so th- this is when I knew that Martha High and, and Mousie were, were real friends. Mousie starts waving the sticks like, even as hurt as I am at this point, like beyond insulted, like I didn't get, get cussed out by the man, threatened to be sued, told me I couldn't play, told me I wasn't shit. Even with Mousy going like this, I'm backstage looking at Mousy like, don't, don't, do don't you yeah. get yourself fired. <laughs> no, stop it. So Mousy's playing. He's like, Mr. Brown, Mr. Brown. Martha High physically walks up to James Brown in the middle of his ranting and like, James Brown said, oh, Lord, have mercy, I forgot. How could I forget the great Christian McBride? Oh, please forgive me, the funkiest <laughs> bass player in the world. And, 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 and Martha High looks back. She's like, you know, I got you. I was like, man, y'all crazy. <laughs> and so at that point, I had no contact with James Brown for nine years. Man. I ran into him on the road somewhere, and I was just kind of like, yo, what's happening? You know, kept walking. Uh, but in 2005, uh, I was named uh, creative chair for the L.A. Philharmonic uh, for their jazz series. Mm-hmm. Um, my job was to curate 12 jazz concerts every season, eight at the Hollywood Bowl and four at Walt Disney Concert Hall. And uh, so I said, with this new position, I got to at least see if I can make this happen. I said, nine years should be long enough. And so uh, I called Charles Bobbitt, the the late Charles Bobbitt, and uh, I said, Mr. Bobbitt, you know, I'm doing this thing with the L.A. Philharmonic. I'm I'm curating shows at the Hollywood Bowl, and, you know, one of Mr. Brown would be interested in doing a jazz big band concert. And he's like, oh, yeah, I, I don't know. You know, it might be hard to make that happen, but let me put the word in and see what happens. About a week later, Charles Bobbitt called me back. He said, Mr. Brown said it's, it's a green light. What? I did said, you believe it? Um, I actually did believe it because when he came to New York, Mr. Bob says, uh, we want to meet with you at, uh, at our hotel. Uh, it's hard for me to say what hotel they stayed at. Uh, it starts with a T. But um, uh, he said, yeah, you know, that, that guy in, in the White House. Oh, him. But, yeah. <laughs> and he okay. says, uh, but yeah, come by there and, uh, and we'll talk about it. So that's when I knew it was serious. I said, man, James Brown, we're actually going to do this. So on September the 6th, 2006. Uh, oh, shit. Three months before. Three yeah. months before he died. Yep. We played at the Hollywood Bowl. James Brown. With, How much uh, rehearsal went into that? We had uh, pretty much just one 
one full day of rehearsals at Center Staging out in Burbank. And um, we only wound up doing, I think, uh, he sang five songs, five or six songs with the big band. And then he did um, Man's World, I Feel Good, and Sex Machine with his own. So it was, the stage was, was packed because his entire band was on this side of the stage. The big band was on this side of the stage. A string section was in the middle. And uh, we had a, a, a drum perch for Louis Belson because we had him come out and play one song with us since he was on the original Soul on Top album. So, uh, Damn, you love risk, man. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's a risk with older cats that, you know. Uh, Lord knows I know that. <laughs> that. I mean, you got to nuance it perfectly That's and right. not hurt their feelings. That's right. Even when they're wrong, they're right. That's right. So <laughs> that's right. And he never sued you though. He never. No, he never no, did no, 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 no. I don't even remember. That's right. <laughs> that was the angel dust talking. Oh, <laughs> angel dust. <laughs> All right. So I'd, I'd nominate Chris the second to uh, D Nice to be repeat guest because I know you got. Yeah, this is this has got to be fifty two, fifty more two parter. Please. Oh, not man. even two parter. We have not. Yeah, <laughs> we didn't even crack the surface. Well, see, bro, you, first of all, um, I, I, I will always say it on the record and off the record, but, man, so proud to call you my homeboy and my friend, man. Hey, man thank you. You, you, you uh, breaking barriers left and right, man. So so proud of you. I'm trying to keep up with you, man. And, Just- I, still, I, I, and I still remember uh, one of my favorite slang terminologies was one that his dad coined, uh, and that was cake. Cake. <laughs> I, I, I never heard anybody use cake. For money, money before. Oh, oh that, wow, that was him. That was your pop. Cake, <laughs> yeah. Man, why you think I got nineteen jobs, man? <laughs> you in that bag? You go on there and get some cake. <laughs> yo, Chris, uh, I thank you for coming on the show, man. Thanks for having I, me, man. Uh, yo, this, man. this is only the beginning. I got to share it on my freestyling next time. <laughs> next, next go round, you will have it. Yes, on, on behalf of it's like yeah, Fontigolo. Uh, unpaid and uh, uh, boss. boss bill. Yes, yeah, so I wanted to say very paid bill. And Sugar Steve, this is Questlove, Questlove Supreme. We'll see you on the next go round. Thank you. Questlove Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. This classic episode was produced by the team at Pandora. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. 
It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. The wait is over. The shy is back on Paramount+, and the stakes have never been higher. Everything changes on the south side when a new threat comes to power in the Showtime original series from Emmy winner Lena Waithe. Battle lines will be drawn, alliances will shift, and danger lies around every corner, leaving everyone to wonder who they can trust. Visit ParamountPlus.com slash shot to get a 50% discount off the Paramount Plus with Showtime annual plan. Offer ends July 14th. Subscription auto-renews. Restrictions apply.